this is an experiment that actually people can run that I would really recommend is just like pick a defined period of time, a week, a month, whatever, and just say yes. Like say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Say yes to every invitation, say yes to every opportunity, and just I guarantee you magic will happen in your life. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, today I interviewed Tiago Forte. Uh, really, really interesting guy. He's building a second brain, brain and he's helping other people build a second brain too. And it's really funny because since we've had this interview, I've been following him on Twitter and I've gotten a little bit more in, into his theory on memorization and uh, note-taking and technology. And I still want to take his course that he talks about in this in this podcast. I haven't yet, but one thing that's really been really interesting is that he doesn't like something called spaced repetition memorization, something that has actually been very, very valuable for me in my life. Um, and uh, so it's really interesting to see his critiques of it and actually uh, adopt some of those critiques in my own framework. You, ultimately, I still find a lot of value in spaced repetition. Uh, but I think one of the points that he makes is that technology will be able to... Technology now allows us to take all the notes that we need and so get it out of your brain and put it somewhere else uh, as opposed to what spaced repetition memorization is doing is uh, putting it all inside of my head basically and to increasing my ability to retain more knowledge. Um, really interesting thing that came out of this. I'm also, he, he also does a lot of uh, online courses and I'm actually gonna start getting into online courses and he has a lot of valuable wisdom uh, here. Um, if you are interested in, in what, what I'll be doing, I'd, I'd love feedback because I'm at the early stage right now and I'm gonna be offering, offering online courses uh, for startup founders um, that Particularly, our first one is going to focus on how to raise money. Um, a friend of mine, I'm going to collaborate with him. He's got a lot of information. He just raised $30 million in a Series A. Uh, and he also has a lot of information about remote, how to take a team uh, and split it between one in the office and the rest remote, uh, which is usually what they say not to do. Uh, but he has some interesting insights into how to, how to actually do that. So if that applies to you, I'd love it. If I could have your thoughts, uh, please reach out to me at, on Twitter at Stuart Allsop, I-I-I, um, or, uh, or, you know, find, um, uh, or just keep on listening to this podcast and, and let me know your thoughts. Uh, I'd love to know if you have any ideas for this online course, if you're interested in taking it, if your friends might be interested in taking it, please, please get in touch um, on Twitter. My DMs are open at Stuart Allsop, I-I-I. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, please let me know what you think. And hope you have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Tiago Forte. He's the founder of an education company called Forte Labs and a researcher and writer on productivity. Uh, I've tried many different productivity suites and uh, Tiago has a lot of things to say about it. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Really happy to be here. Cool. So can you tell people a little bit more about, um, about what you're doing with Forte Labs and, and how it's helping people? Of course, yes. So Forte Labs is my company, uh, which is me and my wife, uh, Lauren. We both work on it. And we are an education company, education and training. So we have a lot of different kinds of educational content from our blog to ebooks to online courses to live workshops to to talks and and all sorts of different formats, all focused on radically improving people's productivity um, and also making work a vehicle for personal growth. So we kind of 
exists at the intersection of right brain and left brain, creativity and productivity, you know, personal growth and material results. We kind of like to have one foot on each side of what seems like a divide and to show that it's actually the, the, the two sides of that divide are actually very much in sync. How do you tell in the moment whether you're working or you're playing? It's a great question. And for me, I mean, a lot of my work is just trying to show or prove or help people um, produce a working environment where they're indistinguishable. Mm. Um, and I think that that comes from my, I was raised with, a, with an artist as a father. Um, he's a full-time painter as in paintings. And uh, it, w- it w- would have made no sense to say if he's working or playing, mm. you know, he's just painting. Painting was his hobby. It was his passion. It was also his income. It was his career. It was all those wrapped up, wrapped up in one. Um, and I think today more and more of us are essentially artists in one, w- in one form or another. Mm. And so our challenge is to find the joy and the excitement and the energy in whatever it is the work we're doing. Mm. And how will technology impact our ability or how has it already impacted us and looking into the future, how will it continue to impact us in in this, in this regard? Yeah. You know, I think it's a question I think about a lot, like why should technology um, enhance or enable creativity? Right. I mean, technology is just a tool. It's just silicon and metal and plastic. And my current sort of hypothesis is I think the, the thing that technology does is it, is it releases constraints, right? Mm -hmm. There used to be such designated places and times and ways and forms and tools for working. Like work had just this whole litany of, of constraints. Um, Most of all, you know, this nine to five workday where you went to a specific place at a specific time, sat at a specific desk. Um, And now people are realizing that if you define work as just creating value, um, and you have, you know, mobile devices, you can really be working, you can be creating value anytime, anyplace with anyone. Mm. Um, so as the constraints fall away, it's sort of like, we have to introduce constraints. And that's what artists do. Artists are constantly, every artist I've ever known does not, um, does not just have this free form kind of endless blank canvas where they just do random things. Mm. What an artist does is they play with constraints, constraints of, you know, the four sides of a canvas or the, the rooms of a wall, if you're a dancer or a, um, you know, the length of a movie, if you're a filmmaker, every medium has its own constraints and playing with those constraints. It actually takes just as much creativity as the thing itself. And that's really interesting. And it's something that's been repeating itself in my life of essentially committing or choosing what it is that I'm here for, or maybe even uncovering what it is I'm here for. Mm. Um, Because as a child, we're filled with infinite potential, but then eventually we need to start making choices just like as a human being, we're in a body and we need to start making choices basically. And that limits our path to certain different ways. And so as, as I'm getting older, the, I have less and less potential, but more kind of, constraints which is beautiful in a way because it's allowing me to actually become as opposed to just be um nothing wrong with either one of those but but i find that really interesting and it reminds me of a conversation i had with julian weiser on my podcast a long time ago which talks about we talked about the essentially the the importance of constraints and so how does forte labs and building a second brain what are the constraints that you're working with 
in establish in a, in a, using technology effectively to create the second brain. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's just one comment on what you just said. I think it's it's that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, as you get older, you have more constraints. Um, I just got just just got married a couple months ago, um, Lauren and I, and we're thinking in the next year or two starting to have starting to try to have uh, kids. Mm. And I can see in you know on the horizon coming up that this uh, just total dedication to my work. Um, that's been what I've been able to do the past five or six years. I mean, really it's my, been my complete focus is not going to continue, but, and that's a little bit intimidating, but it's also, I think it's going to be healthy. Mm. Um, you know, when I, when I work, you know, full, very long days and on the weekend, it's sort of like, there's a lot of room for waste there. Mm. There's a lot of indecision and ambiguity and sort of, uh, doing things that aren't very important mm. um, and talking to my friends who have kids, it seems to be a really, a real sort of forcing function. Um, Absolutely. So I think, mm. Yeah. I think those having more constraints is almost like having more tools in a way. It's like you can, you can sort of focus the beam of your life from a diffuse sort of scattered thing into something that's more kind of directed. Mm. Yep. And I just I was just looking at your Twitter and you talked about uh, essentially you guys are going to have uh, a nanny when when you're going to try to make it a priority to have a nanny. And I remember one of my best friends growing up, his he his parents were both working full time um, and they would have a nanny. And it's this interesting kind of thing that um, enters into a child's life. They have another kind of uh, social outlet and influence and stuff like that. And I saw that with my friends thing. And it also allows you to continue working as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. I, I really think, so this kind of actually relates to uh, living in Mexico, which I know you're curious about. Mm. Uh, and you've also lived in, in a couple cities in Mexico. I think people apply much less creativity to their lives, like to the design of their lives than they could. Mm. Um, it's one of those things that you don't think of as a domain for creativity, like designing your life, like your your living situation, your family size and shape, um, your, your spending priorities, your standard of living across different categories. Like there's so many little, little things you can tweak and you can, you can sort of change. And, but what I tend to see is people sort of just pick the defaults. You know, they live in a, in a kind of a standard place in a standard way at a standard time. Um, and I think I was, I was, I was always really inspired by my, um, my family, my parents, when we were, you know, with four kids, which usually you think, okay, you're not going to do much traveling. Mm. They not only did extensive traveling, I mean, constant traveling. Um, they made that their spending priority. You know, we didn't have, we didn't eat out a lot. We didn't have, we drove 10 year old cars, um, never had like the nice, super trendy clothes or toys or things. But the, the upside was that we could travel extensively. Um, but not only that, but when we were ages like five, eight, 11 and 14, they took us all out of school and moved us to Brazil. Mm, cool. Which like, even at the time, everyone was like, this is crazy. You can't do this. This isn't allowed. And I just admire their courage in, in making such a bold move because that year was just totally pivotal. Mm. I mean, it's where we learned a second language, which then gave us the interest in learning other languages. Um, it gave us our love of travel. It like really broadened our perspective from this, like, you know, suburban Californian kind of 
myop myopia that that tends to happen mm. to the, just the ways other people live and especially people you know who don't have the same means was super mm. eye-opening mm. so this, i don't know yeah this is something i've been really interested i've done a lot of travel i've done a lot of living in other countries particularly living and doing that full immersion inside of another country where you're not just there as a visitor for for seven days but you're actually living there and kind of building a routine and talking to people every day and there's been an interesting thing I've been reading about recently, and hopefully I don't butcher it, but um, when we are put into new experiences, for example, going to another country where the language is different um, and it challenges our ability to, to adapt, it actually regulates our gene expression in a different way. So you're technically not really living your to your full potential unless you are exposing yourself to radically different um, environments over uh, at radically different environments on a somewhat regular basis, but that doesn't mean that you need to travel. It also can just mean that you 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 are you know talking to a girl that you're attracted to, but you never had the confidence to, and kind of putting yourself in that situation. And it gets to this interesting thing that I noticed in my readings about yogis in India, um, even the Buddha. Uh, they once they've had profound spiritual experiences, they tend to continue moving from place to place every night uh, so that they always sleep in a new place every night, basically. And I wonder about really? this and what it, what the connection is between that and a spiritual meditation practice and stuff like that, because it seems to be a very common trait among people who have kind of dedicated their lives to spiritual inquiry. Interesting, huh? Yeah, I think there's there's really something to that. I mean, one thing I think one thing you see when you spend time abroad, especially immersed in one place, um, is that there's so many different ways to be human. Mm. You know, there, there's so like humans have certain needs. Those needs, some of them are you know biologically based, but every culture is sort of like a has a different system for meeting those needs. And they're, they're almost infinitely flexible and interchangeable and sort of have their different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And that's an amazing thing. Like, like before I came to San Francisco and started working in, in tech, um, I was in the Peace Corps in Eastern Ukraine. I lived in a, a small village on the Russian border uh, for, t for a little over two years. Mm -hmm. And it's like compared to that experience, like seeing how people meet their needs, for example, during a Russian winter. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the needs not just for food and warmth, but companionship and novelty and entertainment mm -hmm. and all these things. And then like starting being an entrepreneur and being self-employed compared to a Russian winter, that was easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, people talk about the uncertainty and ambiguity of starting a company. Well, mm -hmm. living abroad is an excellent, excellent uh, sort of, you know, proving ground for that, where mm -hmm. when you come back to the States, everything seems so easy. Um, not that starting a company is easy, but there really is a way for you to stretch yourself um, using things like travel that don't take a lot of money. I mean, I did all my best travel when I had no money, mm. you know, just like teaching English here, teaching something else there, just like doing odd jobs, like whatever it took. Mm. Uh, that was the best possible education for, for my career. Can you talk more about the Russian winter? Because I imagine that that is an emotionally difficult experience as well because of just the dark and the cold um, and everything like that. How, and particularly for many of my listeners who don't know much about the Peace Corps, it's not like you're in some major urban environment. You were probably, I imagine, I, mean, I know there are some in the urban environment, but you were probably in a smaller town. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they try to place you that the whole goal is to, is to put you in a community that doesn't have regular access to Americans, mm-hmm. um, both so that you have a special contribution to make. Like they often don't have, you know, the best schooling systems. They don't have um, a lot of the social support infrastructure. Um, so there's a lot for you to do. And then at the same time, you kind of are forced to learn the language and the culture because you don't have a ton of Americans and other foreigners around. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was in a, a pretty, actually it was, it was a pretty sizable town compared to some others. Mm-hmm. It was maybe like 15,000 or 10,000 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it, yeah, it was super tough. I mean, you just, it, it's just, you, you see, I mean, you see a lot of things, you see how dependent you are on so many things. You know, you're so, we're so dependent on, on water, electricity, food, like just having all of these social support services all around all the time. Um, and then in, in these kind of um, rural areas, you kind of have to think more in advance. You know, you have to think, okay, where's my gas coming from next week when the blizzard comes mm. and the roads are totally impassable. Mm. Um, and I think that, that teaches you to be more, taught me to be more resilient and more kind of thoughtful about my own needs and at the same time taught me to depend on others that that was a huge learning is like as a as an american you know self-reliance is everything and you're taught to just be radically individualistic but then in these you know these environments you just it's just not feasible you have to depend on others Mm. and then you're depending on others who share a different culture um, and who share a different language and which gets, is ripe for miscommunication, I would say. Oh yeah. Tons of miscommunication. I mean, one funny story is something that happened early on is I, um, so people, I arrived in this town and people would ask me to go do things, right? Like, like, you know, I was sort of the, the celebrity American, like if there was a funeral, if there was a wedding, if there was a any event in the, in the town I was kind of automatically invited to. And um, they would ask me, you know, in, in Russian, like, do you want to go to this? And being this passive aggressive Californian, I would say, my way of saying no is I would say, I'm okay. <laughs> but that didn't translate across that linguistic divide. So they only heard the okay. <laughs> Yep. And then I found myself, you know, I just wanted to spend the weekend alone. I'm, I'm kind of an introvert, so I need my alone time. And before I know it, I'm dragged off to this thing. But those that, you know, the few months it took me to realize what was happening were just the best, some of the best months of my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can, this is an experiment that actually people can run that I would really recommend is just like pick a defined period of time, a week, a month, whatever, and just say yes. Like say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Say yes to every invitation, say yes to every opportunity, and just, I guarantee you, magic will happen in your life. Mm. And that, yeah, that, that is a huge thing about traveling to particularly in places that have strong communal um, bonds is that there's a sense of kind of hospitality that you as the guest are, have certain responsibilities in accepting um, invitations and that it kind of knits you closer and, you know, like you, you said it perfectly, uh, growing up in America, we have this individualistic sense, like, I can say no to that um, and, and still have the relationship. But in those countries, no, you can't. You, you kind of have to say yes. Um, I mean, you could, but it just gets brings an intense sense of awkwardness. Um, I remember I once experienced it in East Timor. Um, actually, it was in West Timor. And we showed up and uh, this was I was trying to find a way to get totally disconnected from the Internet in every sense. 
Uh, and so I showed up in West Timor and we found one couch surfer on the island and we stayed with this couch surfer and she started inviting us to all this different stuff. And we kind of, you know, you have to, you have to say yes. Um, and then, uh, and then a friend of, I was traveling with a friend of mine and we were all sitting around the table. Most of the people in the table didn't really speak English. Uh, and then they were explaining to us that how we greet, how they greet each other. And the way that they greet each other in this place in West Timor is they actually go put their face right up to the face of the other person and give the person an Eskimo kiss. So they rub their noses together. Um, and, and so they were teaching us how to do this. And then my friend, uh, they were teaching my friend how to do it. And instead of giving an Eskimo kiss, he, uh, accidentally kisses the patriarch on the mouth. Um, <laughs> and it's totally awkward and everybody just starts cracking up except for the patriarch who was just like, what? what the hell just happened um but then uh oh, then God. right after this they uh they invited us to come to a funeral um and so we, so we you know it was kind of like hospitality thing like you have to you have to go do it so we we joined joined them for this funeral and this was after like three hours three flights over three days and just kind of crazy madness so tired but you have to do it and so we get on our scooters and we follow them uh, and we get to the funeral and there's a whole bunch of people partying outside the funeral because um, in, in the Southeast Asia and there's a very kind of festive um, atmosphere around around death. And uh, and so uh, we sh show up and us being the Americans, they brought us into the room where there was a dead body. Um, and then they 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 had they had us greet each person in the room by going and giving them an Eskimo kiss. Uh, and so I had, <laughs> one of the hardest things I've ever done, where, which I had to go up directly to each person, look them directly in the eyes, put my nose right against their nose and just wiggle my nose um, for like 10 people. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, was so, it was so crazy. But yeah, just like you said, it's like traveling. It's like it brings the, it's, you're just putting these situations where you kind of have to say yes to things you would not normally say yes to. Um, yeah, exactly. And it just propels you into these situations that you're just like, how did I get here? <laughs> And so how is that, um, how has that kind of influenced what you're doing? I mean, we've been talking about it already, um, but you're, you're now helping people become really productive at, and are you helping them to establish constraints on themselves? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, I like to get quite a bit more practical. Um, and I think this comes from, so besides the Peace Corps, mo most of my career actually before um, the couple of years I spent consulting in Silicon Valley um, was in sort of international development or nonprofits or teaching. Um, and I just, it really was impressed on me the, the urgency, you know, the, the urgency of the challenges that people have. Like it's not, it's not academic, it's not abstract, like, you know, whatever is the, the domain we're talking about, there's people struggling with it like every day. So mm -hmm. I really like to get into the nitty gritty. Um, with my my main focus these days, which is an online course and hopefully soon a book uh, called Building a Second Brain, what we're getting into is digital note-taking. I really believe that digital note-taking, which is really just note-taking, like you would do on a, on a pad or in a moleskin, but digital, where it's like searchable, you can sync it across your devices, you can tag and all these things, that that is one of the most important frontiers of productivity. Mm -hmm. Um, even though it's not directly doing things, um, the, the connection is that your knowledge, you know, like if you have a piece of knowledge or you could say a piece of wisdom, that, that knowledge can do work. Mm. You know, it's, it's not just this abstract 
thing that you have in some computer, it can actually do work in the sense that it can, you know, a powerful idea, which is, you know, our knowledge is our ideas can make, can make something that was hard actually be easy. Mm. Something that, that was supposed to take a long time, not take a long time can make something impossible become possible. So ideas, and this is actually a, a trend in, in the research I'm reading more and more about is ideas have causal power. You know, they actually have almost like a form of agency. So mm-hmm. one of the highest leverages, leverage things you can do is not just get better at your own productivity and, you know, check more boxes faster, but set up your ideas in a way that they can, can sort of act on the world more powerfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds very grand and, you know, like, really crazy but really that just comes down to at the most basic level writing down your ideas capturing them organizing them in some sort of repository outside of your head such as your computer um and then what my course teaches which is different ways of searching and retrieving and resurfacing uh those ideas into the work that you do Mm. that's the key part yeah (laughs) Cause that's the thing that I've always struggled with the most. And, and I had a coach who taught me a system, which was very simple Google doc, where you just kind of have a numbered list uh, and then you have a link and then you have a description of what that link means to you. Um, and then, uh, uh, but then resurfacing it at the right time is always the hardest part. I would end up with these just giant lists of things and then, and then be like, Oh, there's that link that I saw like seven months ago that had this information that now I can send to this person. And something that this coach said to me always stuck with me, which was that if I were, if I had a list, if I had built a list for all of the ideas and all of the links that I've ever had, I would be a billionaire right now. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I believe it. I, I actually believe that, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the most, it's like we set up expertise as this thing, as this like endpoint, you know, like, once you had X number of decades of experience, then you have this thing called expertise. Mm. I think expertise is actually, just, it's, it's everywhere all the time in, in people of every age, you know, and, and what's expertise to you may not be to me, depending on what we know. Mm. Um, and so I find, you know, people go through my course and one thing they often find is they like, sometimes they think, okay, I'm doing this as a sort of preparatory measure so that one day when I have lots of valuable knowledge, or I have true expertise, then I'll have the system in place. Mm. But then through the process of cre- starting to create notes and create the organizational structure and then put it, actually put these notes to use, they find that they already have a ton of knowledge. But mm. until it's externalized, it is, you know, as long as that knowledge is, is, is in your head, it's sort of just this like amorphous mass that you can't really grab a hold of, mm. uh, which is why getting it out of your head is the, the fundamental first step. And this is key. I actually learned this in a in a um, book about the science behind what happens when you body do body work on someone. Um, and it's we are the only species we believe that can build whole thought palaces and imagination um, complexes and fantasies without ever having to place them into a uh, concrete form. And, but unless you translate that amorphous fantasy into either uh, speech, uh, writing, uh, and then there's another one I'm forgetting now, but uh, the, you have to basically express it to make it real. And, we're, and we can, we as human beings can get totally lost in this abstract realm of fantasy, which is really interesting. Yeah, and that's the danger, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, we can use that, that superpower for 
self-delusion mm-hmm. um, just as easily as we can, uh, you know, use it to create new frameworks and new worlds and new whatever it is. Um, and sometimes the line between those is not very clear. Uh, but th- this is why, I mean, I think that the main thing that separates my approach to, to knowledge management from really anything else I've seen is that my approaches were not developed in academia. They weren't developed in a research institute. They weren't developed even based on any theory. You know, it, it completely came out of my work teaching people on the ground productivity. Mm. Um, and that, and actually, I didn't even think about notes until that start, started being a need that arose across many, many different uh, situations. And so I, I sort of came upon knowledge management kind of backwards and by accident. And everything has been, every sort of technique that I teach has been developed in the real world. It's been developed through being a freelancer, being self-employed, growing a company, um, and teaching people from different professions. So sometimes what I teach either doesn't have a theoretical sort of underpinning, or I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> and this is, this is what I love about some things that Nicholas Nassim Taleb talks about, which is that uh, if you talk to a plumber or if you talk to somebody who has direct experience and skin in the game, they might have all the theories in the world, but you'd really want to trust their specific special knowledge about how that, how they do their job, because that's informed over things that are kind of more effective than uh, just our frontal cortex understanding of what's going on. It's like, it's like a deeper intuitive kind of process. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how I think. It's like, it's like, you know, every person all day long has, has knowledge and is making use of knowledge. You know, the, the plumber, the carpenter, but also the analyst, the journalist, you know, whether it's pure information work or there's something more concrete, doesn't really matter. Um, but then you, you define this field or this topic called knowledge management. And some, suddenly it's this like abstract thing requiring like wikis and databases and knowledge capture systems and all these like really things that have no connection to most people's day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find my, my most common sources of inspiration are our existing practices or ways of doing things that come from professions where people have to kind of make use of large volumes of information and use it to make decisions and to take actions when there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of stress. So for example, surgeons, um, airline pilots, soldiers, um, like chefs of uh, busy restaurants, like these sorts of professions have absolute gold when it comes to structuring their environment to give them the information that they need when they need it. Mm that gets really interesting into potential ways that technology can surface that information on the go, particularly now that we've gotten um, earbuds and uh, audio more, more acceptance of audio processed information. Yes. Yes. I think that's, that's another big frontier of productivity. Yeah. It's surfacing instead of surfacing all the things you could do just the one or two or three that you should do mm-hmm. at that right time at that right place. Yes, at the right time, under conditions where you can actually complete it. Mm. I mean, that I think that's the, the boundary that machine learning is sort of eating away at. Mm. Um, currently, my everything I teach is, is, even though it uses technology, it doesn't, doesn't use really the cutting edge. I mean, digital note-taking couldn't be simpler. It's text documents. Mm. Right? Like, I don't even use the features of the note-taking apps that I, that I teach people. Like, mm. 
It's the most basic stuff. And, and, and the reason for that is I really advocate informality, mm-hmm. you know, informal, back of the napkin, quick and dirty, uh, little shortcuts that people just sort of make up just to get things done, mm-hmm. to me, is the greatest source of practical wisdom. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's huge. And that's really interesting because I've, I've had a formal meditation practice for a long time. And I used to think that sitting every day for 30 minutes in a formal seated position was doing something special that was going to get me to become a better person, blah, 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 blah. I'm all finding that that, that is uh, bullshit. And essentially that the, the most impactful meditation practice is an informal meditation practice when you are in the moment of a intense emotion or uh, in an argument and you can really pay attention fully to that whole emotional thing that's happening and really digest the entire experience as as opposed to creating a story about it it's a little bit mm. tangential but uh but i have i think informality is really important because people have been put in these structured environments their whole lives and uh they rebel against it and so i like i believe that what do you think yeah, I, I mean, you said it well. It's we are we're always looking for a box to fit ourselves into, mm. um, and you see that in the professions people pick, the things they learn about, the books they read. Uh, it's all very um, kind of goes back to the lifestyle thing. Like people look for defaults; they look around themselves for what other people are doing. And then most of the time, for most things, at most times, they just do that. Mm. And I, I get it. You know, cognitive load is a real thing. You can't decide everything from scratch all the time. Um, but I think a lot of my, you know, I don't usually describe my work as habit formation mm. uh, or behavior change, but I think it is in that you can choose new defaults. Mm. You can make a one-time decision, you know, establish a new routine, you know, adopt a new system. And then that can take as little energy as kind of doing what everyone else does Mm. and eventually less because it's something you chose intentionally and customized for you and your, your own situation. Mm. Yeah. That's the really interesting thing about habits is the more you practice them, the more, the less friction that you experience in doing them. Um, I just started a, a, a 30 day challenge for myself to start writing a newsletter every day. Um, and it's, because I've been doing spaced repetition software for so long now and have that daily habit of action towards a goal, um, it's way, way easier. But if I had started doing this like three or four years ago before I had started building those habits out, it would have been really hard. I know that that's a great one, by the way, we, um, I teach a course along with my partner, business partner, David Perel. Um, it's called rite of passage. It's Mm -hmm. on, it's on kind of writing online, writing for the modern age. Mm. Um, and one of the assignments we have people do, and at first they're like, what does this have to do with writing? We have them set up an email list and a newsletter um, and start adding people to it, of course, with their permission, but just starting to send out. And at first it's like a handful of people, mm. um, what you're doing. And it's, it's been so funny to watch at first, at first people being like, this is so weird. Like I'm not writing about that interesting things. I'm just updating people on what I'm doing. And yet that's the beginning. Yeah. You know, that's how you start just generating sort of a, the circle of people that maybe you don't talk to directly very often or ever, but who are just a little bit attuned to your work and what you're doing mm. um, and start to, that's, that's the very seed of the audience where eventually when that audience grows, you can actually have a, 
a real audience for whatever it is you're working on. Mm. And I, and I, I love that about it. And I love the direct nature of it too. I mean, there is an algorithm that determines whether uh, you're, email gets into their primary box or one of their updates box or another box. And I'm sure there's other things for different emails, but it's not like the algorithms that you face with Facebook that have been basically commercialized to the point of trying to keep everyone onto the system as long as possible. It's like outside that whole kind of um, incentive structure that Facebook and the other social networks have, although Facebook's the worst in terms of, in terms of what it's doing, uh, what it's, what it's uh, optimizing for. I'm really enjoying that, that I don't need this, this, this social network getting in the way of, pe- of, of the people that I want to talk with. I know it's crazy. We, we, people have been surprised, you know, we had this five week course with barely any mention of social media. Social media is just not an important part of it. Mm. Uh, and it's for that reason you said it's, you don't, you know, there's email is going to be around forever or at least for a very, very long time. It's not dependent on one company. It's not dependent. You don't have to pay. Uh, like the same way, you know, for every person you reach, like the social networks, um, you have more control, you have their email addresses, so you can easily move from one provider to another. Mm. It's like, if anyone, I, I would say, is trying to build any kind of reputation or content or business or anything online, I think it, it's all about email. Yep. Mm. So interesting. How, how, how have you, knowing what you know now, well, so first, let me ask, how, when did you build your first online course? My first online course was my very first project um, as a self-employed person. In fact, uh, I just thought, thought of it as a little project I would do between jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just told myself, I'll just keep doing this as long as I can you know, pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And six years later, that's kind of still how I think. Like I'm just doing one project after another. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, um, what was the hardest thing about building an online course that you know now that you didn't know then? The hardest thing. You know what's really funny is that it's almost like that first course was in some ways my most successful course. Mm. Um, definitely in terms of people, in terms of pure numbers. Interesting. Um, you know what's funny is the most powerful thing was actually what I didn't know. Mm. You know, first, the, the course was a complete uh, translation of a best-selling book, which is Getting Things Done, huh. um, into, video, into a video-based course. And, and I just didn't know that that was potentially not legal. <laughs> <laughs> like, it literally it never occurred to me that you can't just get a book and just directly put it into a course form. Interesting. Just, like, didn't, didn't think about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and that probably would have stopped me. You know, there's no way I'm going to spend a month of, of intense effort to do this when it could just be killed. Yeah. Um, and actually sometime later, as the course took off, I did get an email from, you know, David Allen's lawyer saying, you know, this is a protected trademark, but all they asked me to do was to put a small disclaimer, which I was happy to do. Interesting. Uh, and then a few years later, incredibly, uh, David Allen invited me to be on his podcast. <laughs> That's so cool. So, That's really that interesting. Like my biggest break. So I just say like, what you don't know can be just an, like, oh, another thing was I launched my course on a, on a, a platform called Skillshare uh-huh. that, that at the time and still today is completely around design, uh-huh. right? They have like, you know, Adobe Photoshop, Illustrator, graphics, video, all these things. And if I had just thought for a second, maybe, I don't know if I should launch a productivity course on a design site. 
um, I would have not done it, but I just was too dumb, thankfully. Mm. And it ended up being like this brilliant strategic move because for years I was the only productivity course on the whole site. Mm. So like at some, at some point, Skillshare was running ads for my course because sure. they, they saw that when people started with my course and kind of got their stuff together, just got organized, that then they were a much more successful student in all the other courses. Mm. And I just, I just couldn't believe like, so that's my answer is what my most powerful assets have been what I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is so key to what I've been learning recently in my own personal life uh, that, uh, because of what I've experienced in childhood, um, you know, I had, I had certain patterns that I developed in response to difficult situations as a child. Uh, and those, those patterns that emerged are essentially me, this thing that I call Stuart, knowing what is right or believing that I know what is right. But now as I've started to peer into those patterns, I've realized that they aren't actually, they're like, it's impossible to be right. It's impossible to have all of the necessary information at your fingertips right at the right moment all the time. Uh, so the default kind of for me is now understanding that the more important lessons are hiding somewhere in what I don't know. Um, and, but that means that in order to jump into that, that I have to be very, that I have to start getting comfortable with this, not knowing and kind of trusting that, that I will figure out what I need to figure out, uh, even though it might be a brutal process. So true. Yeah. Not knowing, not, not only is it necessary, it's, it's like a, it's like a great gift. Mm. You know, I, it's like, it's like, I wrote this, this series on my blog about the theory of constraints. The theory of constraints is this, this originally a, a, a way of running factories. Mm. So like how do you run your manufacturing plant in a way that's efficient? Um, and then it grew from there into a whole way of thinking about any kind of system from hospitals to companies to um, society to airplanes, anything. Mm. And I wrote this series um, just really for my own learning. Like I, I kind of have to write to know what I think and I have to write to synthesize what I think. Mm. So I wrote this series of just kind of like medium length blog posts explaining the theory of constraints basically to myself. And it's done super well. It's been one of my most successful posts or series. And the people who get the most out of it are experienced theory of constraints experts. Mm. They write me because it's like my novice eyes, my beginner's eyes, my beginner's mind, right? I'm able to just say what it is in a way that's unburdened by all the decades of baggage. Mm. Of institutional um, baggage, yeah. Everything, historical baggage, the, 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 the lingo, the terminology, the, the jargon they use, um, this sort of deference to certain key figures. Mm. Uh, my, my ignorance of almost everything about the theory of constraints was the thing that allowed me to write an introduction that actually was accessible to non-experts. Yep. Mm. Um, and this is why I tell people like you write, you do the writing first. It's not like you become an expert and then you start teaching mm. because by the time you're an expert, you're blind. You have expert blindness. You are, you've forgotten what it's like to be a novice. So the best time to teach or to write is when you yourself are a novice, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. So interesting. And that's, yeah. Okay. So, and so I've got a couple different ways, for, like we could go with this 
the first is I'm really interested in online courses and I, but I have am experiencing such a block as to what I should teach people um, or what I have to value. And what you just said kind of makes me think a bit, a little bit about it. Uh, so I'd love to ask you about, about just kind of advice on that that might be valuable to my listeners as well. Or we could talk about how you have transitioned to Mexico. Cause I know that moving to a foreign country for me, at least was difficult to maintain productivity uh, so if you wanted to talk about basically productivity and how it, it is easy or difficult for you to move to another country and maintain that same level of productivity. So two different paths, which one do you want to take? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about online courses. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we already talked a bit about travel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge, huge proponent of online courses. Mm. It's just, I mean, we're going to look back. I swear to you. Okay. Record this. <laughs> Um, we're going to look back in not that long, a decade, a couple decades. And this period now is going to be like, whenever was the early years of the last, like the, the age of universities, like, I don't know what that was like the 1600s or something Mm. like when Harvard and these, these universities started, like there is a movement of learning online that is just barely peeking its head above the ground. Um, and it's a free for all. It's an absolute insane free for all. Um, just because there no longer is there this sort of one way of doing it, which is the school, mm. right? There's coaching programs, there's self-paced and live. There's some that are more experiential, some that are more about the information, some that are, um, that are long-term, some that are short-term, some that are based on cohorts, on groups, some that are individual. It's like every dimension that humans can operate that you can think of, there will be a form of online learning for that. Mm. Um, and it's, you know what it really is? It's, you know, people are used to online content being free. Mm. That's the expectation. People expect blog posts to be free, videos to be free, all these things to be free. What all a course is, one way of thinking of it is it's just a particular kind of packaging. Mm. It's like a particular framing that suddenly people are more than willing to pay for it. Mm. Mm. And it's the same stuff. It's just like, what is a course except content, you know, text, images, videos, basically those three things that you would otherwise find for free just in a, in a more organized, coherent package. Mm. And it's the framework. It's the overarching theory that, 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 that gets people kind of attracted to the story itself of what's being offered. The, the free content you mean? Oh, well, no, no. So what I'm saying is that the that the structure of the course that makes somebody want to pay for it is this almost like this story that 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 is that is told in a particular way that combines all these different elements into something that people would actually pay for as opposed to just kind of searching ad hoc on YouTube for that that information. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's in some ways the antidote. You know, the the it's a blessing to have just this unlimited free content on all these different platforms, but the the downside of that is the incoherence. Mm-hmm. Everyone is shouting into the wind and just saying whatever they have to say. And it all, a lot of it seems random or is contradictory or is not in an order that you can actually consume, or maybe it's interesting, but not practical or it's practical, but doesn't have enough explanation. Like, you know, the frictionlessness of online content is wonderful, but then the online course kind of comes up as a counterbalance where you are putting everything for once in this step-by-step linear curriculum, um, you know, that has units or modules. It has a beginning and an ending. It has exercises, has assignments, has a final project. Like, 
And I, I love using all the same language as, as school, you know, cause, cause once you use this language, everyone knows what you're talking about. It's just happens to be online. Mm -hmm. And so for me thinking about what type of, you know, I have all these things that I've been interested in over the years. What would be your advice for somebody like me who wants to do something, wants to offer this knowledge that I have, but doesn't, isn't quite clear on what's the most effective thing that I have to offer? Yeah. So I think that's something that, that an audience has to tell you, mm -hmm. you know, you might get lucky and, and sort of guess what the right thing is. But I mean, even in my case where I did get lucky, it was because I was basically borrowing all of the testing and the customer validation that David Allen and his company did over decades. Mm right? That's why it was successful. But then actually my second course, which is on habit formation, um, I, you know, I kind of got a big ego after my first course. I was like, Oh, this online teaching is so easy. You just publish something and the cash rolls in. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> and then my second course, which was my own content, I sort of developed it from more from scratch, yeah. um, just kind of flopped. Mm. Um, and so I think you have to, and, and this is where free content is also useful. You know, if you publish, you know, 20 blog posts, look at the one, you, almost always it's like a power law, right? It's like the 10% has more traffic than the other 90% combined. Yep. In, any, in any kind of content, that's true of any body of work, of videos, of your podcast episodes, of anything, there's a power law. So get that, that sort of, you know, 10% that was most successful and then do another batch of content just exploring that 10%. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like you kind of, it's like, it's like a fractal that you keep zooming in on and keep opening up mm. almost like a present and then talking about it or examining it from different angles. And, um, at each stage of that, there will be one or one small segment of it that is much more popular than the rest. I don't know why this happens, mm. but it's like, it's like attention on the internet just gravitates towards that one most sort of engaging and viral thing. Mm. This brings to mind a couple of things, which is the first is that this is a, whenever you're creating content for people, it seems like such a long-term game because you don't know what's going to work. So it's probably not a good thing to quit your day job and like switch to this and imagine that within three months, you're going to be making enough money for you to live because it seems like to be a very long form content. Would you say that that's correct? So it's, it's, it's both, right? Because I think to, I mean, to create a body of content that is really known and that can make a reputation and that can really, I mean, make an impact on your field is yeah, it takes a hell of a long time, mm. but I, I really like this approach of, I mean, so my first project was an online course. I borrowed the learning of David Allen, got lucky and I started selling. But then what happened is from that beginning point, every single little thing I did, whether it was free or not, and most things were free, became an advertisement for the course, mm. right? Which completely changes the economics. Like if you have a website that depends on um, advertising, let's say, like you're not even in the game until you're getting like, I don't even know how many, but probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of visitors, mm. right? Like you're making pennies. Yep. But then when you have a course that say costs 50 bucks, Right. And you have, let's just say a low conversion rate of 1%, right? Mm -hmm. That means every hundred people you're making 50 bucks, mm -hmm. you know, every thousand people you're making 500, every 10,000, you're making 5,000. 
that's a, it's a completely, and this is why I'm such a fan of charging. I charge for almost everything, mm. um, in some, some shape or form because it completely changes the economics where you do not have to reach scale, mm. um, in order to make money. Interesting. And now would you say that people are becoming more and more likely to charge? Like I, what do you think about Substack and that, what that represents like, and maybe Patreon too? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we're, we're at the beginning of a big movement to charging for content. Mm. Um, now that I said all that about free content, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I have a, a, a membership based blog. It's called Praxis. Mm. Uh, it costs 10 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a year. Mm. Um, and it's, it's so, I mean, gosh, this is maybe a whole nother episode, but it's so interesting. Mm. The, the dynamics that come into play when you charge for your content. Mm. Um, I mean, your own attitude toward it completely changes. Mm. Um, the, the people who are reading it, their attitude toward it completely changes. Um, the attitude of people who are not members, but looking in and sort of seeing what you're doing and keeping an eye on you and maybe thinking about joining their psychology is completely different. It's like, it's very, very interesting. I mean, to me, it's worth doing just for the learning and just for the sort of psychology aspect. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a future episode on that. And that's, that's the interesting thing that Substack is, uh, they, they, they give me the advice to, uh, start it out for three months, just free content, but always provide the best, the best, they say that the best work should be done for free, uh, um, so that it gets, it can give people a sense of what they're buying into if they, if they, if they pay for it. Yeah. That's so that, that right there is one of the really trippy kind of mindset shifts, mm. right? Um, I mean, and, and, and there's a good analogy to consulting. Like if you're, if you're doing a consulting job for a client, if you give them your just kind of average work, your mediocre work, would you expect them to hire you again? Mm, yeah, no, not at all. Obviously you give your best work, but then when it comes to content, somehow people go, oh no, I got to hold back the best stuff it has to be in this walled garden. Mm. Um, and for my, so like for building a second brand, which is my, it's my main focus. It's by far my biggest source of revenue. Mm. Uh, when I first started like 20% maybe of the course you could find elsewhere for free. Mm. And then it went to 40 and then 60. And now I'd say it's approaching 80%. Mm. And you would think, Oh, you're can cannibalizing. You're like giving it away for free, but actually every, every bit that that percentage increases sales increase. Mm. Because when you've given that much value up front, it's almost just like, it's a, it's like by the time someone has spent that much time with you, you know, like they've just sunk that much attention into your stuff. Yep. They almost, it sounds weird. They almost can't go anywhere else. Mm, interesting. <laughs> but you've infected their mind space so thoroughly that paying you for that last 20% or really just... I think of it and I often see it's really just kind of gratitude. Yeah. That's you what know, I was you've given them 80% of a course for free. That last payment is really almost just like repaying you for everything you've already given them. That, that's, that makes so much sense because it's, it's, it's the same thing that I get with Duolingo. Um, Duolingo, you know, is an app for free for a long time. They've now added a plus subscription and it's just like, I've gotten so much value from them that I want, I, that I want to give them money. And that's, I think, the same thing that goes on to a lot of purchasing for, for things like what we're talking about is that people just have this sense of like gratitude and they want to make that a, uh, make it financially like uh, clear that they're, that, that like, that they're just very grateful for all the work that you've been putting out there for free. 
Um, exactly. Yeah. There, there's this thing, you know, it's like the longevity of relationships is increasing now. Um, this, this has always been true. Like with, with just the traditional, you know, economy, you didn't want to burn anyone because you know, a, a professional relationship could last way longer than any job. It, w- it, w- it would definitely last longer than any, jo- any job. So your reputation outlasted any particular role that you had. But with the internet, that's even increased because now even if we move on different sides of the planet, even if we change career- industries and careers, even if we completely fall out of touch on online, you always have a line back to that person. Yep. So suddenly it's like the, it's like game theory. It's like suddenly the, the returns to, to having high integrity, to playing fair, to providing value up front have massively increased. Yeah. Um, because once you find that person uh, who is, is just really believes in you, really resonates with your ideas, their loyalty just has no price, right? Yeah. Because that loyalty has a way to pay you dividends no matter what changes happen in your career. This brings up to mind somewhat tangentially that the internet and technology are, you know, now there's tons of audio. I'm going to put this onto audio and then it will create tons of copies of this conversation so that it will never not be known what we were talking about. But for the vast majority of human history, everything everybody said, 99.999.9% was all lost. Um, now it's all going to be solidified, which then gets into technology about immutable databases, which even takes that further into it and says like, this is now on the record. So it's making everything like clearly on the record. And now people are creating videos, audio, uh, uh, online courses that will stay on the record as long as the databases themselves don't lose power. Yes. Yeah. It's the, that long tail. Yeah. Like no longer do you need to have this you know, this one viral thing that just surfs, you know, all the viral inter- internet sites and is your big break. The, the concept of a break doesn't make any sense anymore because it's all in the long tail. Yep. Like, you know, the people coming back and listening to this episode, your other episodes over time, that little trickle over time will be way bigger than any like one-time audience for one episode. Mm. That's, that's, that's the real gold. Yeah. Which is interesting because that yet doesn't exist yet for podcasts, but it will soon probably once the technology gets easier for making this into smaller clips and then, and then making it searchable, that will get easier, I think, but it is not there right now. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you'll have a head start. I mean, that, that's the funny thing, right? The people who win any new generation of technology are the ones that started investing before it was an obviously good idea. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to talk with me about this stuff. It's really cool. Absolutely, Stuart. This has been fun. It's a lot of stuff I've been thinking about. Clearly, you have been too. Mm-hmm. And uh, for your listeners, I'd encourage them to just get in touch. Um, ForteLabs.co, F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S dot C-O, not dot com is my website. Um, at Forte Labs is my Twitter account. That's where I'm most active. And if they have any comments or questions or anything they want to share, I'd be, be happy to hear from them. Uh, yeah, everybody go check out Forte Labs. It sounds really cool and I'm going to do it myself. I think, I'm, I think you convinced me to check out the, the second brain thing. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Stuart. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please, uh, please subscribe uh, at Crazy Wisdom on iTunes. Uh, Stitcher, Spotify, 
and hit the subscribe button. And, you know, I, I release episodes every Monday and Friday morning before your commute. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III or uh, catch some more small clips of my of these podcasts I'm doing and some own thoughts from my life on my blog at stuartalsop.substack.com. Uh, really hope you enjoy this episode and the other content I'm doing it. I'm doing it just out of the, the pure wanting to share all the crazy stuff that's happened in my life and all the lessons I've learned from it. And hopefully there's something of value for you there. Uh, have a great day.